Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, to see what God has to say to us through this letter this morning. Well, as we think about, uh, let me just move this fan so it doesn't keep turning my pages for me. There we go. Uh, when we think about what Paul has to say to, to Titus, we think about the impact of the gospel on a culture. And when the gospel enters a culture, any culture, it never leaves it unchanged. It always challenges us. And we always find ourselves challenged by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by his claims that we can't remain the same. And so it was when the gospel came to the island of Crete. Now, we don't know when exactly the gospel came to the island of Crete. We know, for example, that in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, there were some there from Crete. It could be then that some of them had heard about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he had done and had gone back to the island of Crete to establish fledgling churches there. We also know that in Acts 27, as Paul is making his way to Rome for his first Roman imprisonment, he spends a short stop off there on his journey. For a very short time, he may have preached the gospel there and seen some of the people of Crete come to know Jesus Christ. Or perhaps it was on a later visit after his first Roman imprisonment, perhaps he then returned to the island of Crete to uh, preach the gospel. And perhaps it was on that occasion that he saw people coming to know Jesus Christ. At any rate, we do know that he didn't spend as long there as he wanted to spend and his companion on that visit to Crete was a man called Titus. And he leaves Titus behind in order to facilitate the growth of the churches there. And he wants him to finish what he started. And that's what Paul's going to say today. And so he writes this letter to Titus, who's based in the island of Crete, in order to encourage him and to give him some advice about how to care for the church there. And like I said... The gospel, it never leaves a culture unchanged. And there were serious problems that the church of Crete needed to confront. There were lies and deceit that were widespread across the island of Crete. And it was such a problem that many of the Greeks, when they talked about how people were, were, were lying, would say, well, that person's playing the Cretan, that person's Cretanizing. Because it was so embedded in the Cretan culture to just be deceitful all the time that, that people just used the idea of a Cretan as someone who lied. And Paul, in this letter, is going to quote from a Cretan poet, Epimenides, who said, he was himself Cretan, who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Those are strong words coming from someone who was himself a Cretan. And we're going to come back to those. But God was in the process of making a new creation. God was in the process of intervening, even there in Crete, which was ravaged by the effects of deceit and was bringing about a new people for his own glory. Through the reconciliation which God had brought about through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God was calling people to himself and changing their lives through the Holy Spirit and bringing them to experience the life that he wanted his people to enjoy the life that had been planned for them from before the creation of the world. And so fundamentally, and the message of this book of Titus, this letter to Titus, is how God forms a good people from their darkness and sin 
in the midst of a bad world. And Titus, he's been left behind to facilitate this growth of God's people. And we're going to see how Paul encourages Titus in the work that that he has been left to do. And for us today, the call to live good lives in the midst of our broken world is just as true today. And so we pray that God would speak to us as we read his word. And so we're going to read then from Titus chapter 1 and hear what God has to say to us. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk, deception, especially those of the circumcision group, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And this is the word of the Lord. So, how does God form a good people for his glory in the midst of a bad world. Well, we see in the first four verses that the message of the gospel, this true message of life, has been entrusted to the Apostle Paul. And it is this message that brings transformation. It brings about good lives that have been shaped by the gospel. Then in verses five through to nine, we see that God not only gives this message of the gospel, but he gives leaders who set an example to God's people of how to live good lives. And so not only does God give a message, but he gives people to set an example. And then finally in verses 10 to 16 of this chapter, we see God forms a good people by challenging the wickedness of the culture that they find themselves in. Crete might be full of wickedness, people who are unfit to do anything good. But God challenges this with the truth of the gospel so that that will be changed and people will be brought out of the darkness that they're in. 
So as we go through this passage, then we think first of all about these these first four verses where Paul introduces himself to Titus. And we see that God forms a good people by bringing them this message of new life, this true message of life. And Paul, as he describes how this message that is, describes how he has been entrusted with this message, says that he is a servant of God and an apostle. That means he has been commissioned by Jesus Christ. And his responsibility then is to be faithful to all that his master has entrusted him to do. And he says then that his responsibility in verse 1 is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And then he says in verse 3 that he does this through the preaching that has been entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. And so there we see God has commanded him to go, ab- to go out and to share this message with everyone that he meets. This message which leads to godly living. And Paul, he highlights some features of this message that are worth thinking about. He says that his... His aim is to further the faith of God's elect, God's chosen people. Because Paul, he sees very clearly that God's purposes in this world aren't aimless. It's not just like he's randomly going about trying to see what's going to happen. No, God has a very purposeful plan that he is enacting in this world. And God has chosen a people for himself that he is going to bring to himself and transform so that they're going to be a people for his glory who are going to experience true life and live lives that are devoted to doing what is good. And... Paul explains that this truth that he proclaims gives us hope of eternal life. Eternal life is the life of eternity, the life of God, the life of the age to come that has begun even now in our lives so that we experience now a taste of the life that we will enjoy in the future. And this eternal life, says Paul, has been promised before the beginning of time. And again, this ties in with this idea that God has a very purposeful plan that he is enacting. Ever from the the very beginning, before this world ever came into existence, before human beings sinned against God and went away from God, God had a plan whereby he would bring a people to himself, rescue them from their sins, and give them eternal life, to give them true life, the life that he intended for them from the very beginning. And this is a contrast to the life that so many people will try to offer to the Cretans in the world around them, the life that is offered to us in the world around us. So many people tell us, this is the good life. This is la dolce vita. This is the way that you want to live your life. But so much of that can be written off as false because so much of it's based on lies. And so Paul assures Titus that this message of life comes to us from the God who does not, who cannot lie. This is entirely true this message of life that's being given to us. And this is a message which has been brought to light at this appointed season. Paul's talking about the fact that it had been shrouded in in mystery for a long time, but when Jesus Christ came into the world, then there was no escaping the reality of life with God that was now available. God had revealed himself through Jesus Christ and invited people to come to know him from whatever culture and background so that they would know life with God in its fullness. And so Paul, he writes to Titus 
and says, you're my true son in our common faith. And he prays that he would experience grace and peace from God and Christ Jesus. He serves in this responsibility of facilitating the growth of God's people. And so God's people, they're going to be transformed. They're going to be made godly through this proclamation of this true, this trustworthy message of life. And we recognize the power of truth to change us, even in our everyday lives and circumstances. So often, politicians, for example, come along and they promise that they're, they're going to tell us the truth. They're going to tell us the truth about how to build a better world. And whether that's economic policies or social policies, they tell us that if you listen to us, we will be able to fix things and we will be able to give you a better life. And sometimes they call upon us to make drastic changes to our lives. And very often we, we listen to them. I think about during the pandemic and, and we often trusted the politicians who told us that if we made these radical changes in our lives, went into lockdown, then it would preserve many lives, that it would make things better for us. And my point isn't to question the rights and wrongs of that. That's, that's, um, that's a question that remains, isn't it? My point is that we were willing to make drastic changes to our lives because we believed very often that what they were saying to us was true. But at many times we discover, of course, that what they tell us isn't true and that they can't keep the promises that they've made. And the sacrifices that we make so often prove to be fruitless. But the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what he has done to reconcile us to God, comes to us in the midst of our confusion and says that this is where you can find true life. This is the truth. If you want to know true life, life as God intended it, life in communion with God, then you're going to give up your old life and find it in Jesus Christ. That's where it's going to be found. And because God doesn't lie, because God cannot lie, then this is where we find hope. This is where we find life. And this changes us. It produces godliness in our lives as we model our lives after Jesus Christ. And so we come this morning wanting to experience transformation, wanting increasingly to be the people that God wants us to be, to experience the life that God wants us to enjoy. And we learn in these words of Paul to Titus that it's found only through this message of Jesus Christ. It's found only in Jesus Christ himself. Because only in Jesus Christ do we encounter the one who is entirely true, entirely truthful. Only in Jesus Christ do we discover the one who loves us completely to give his own life for us on the cross to reconcile us to God. Only through Jesus Christ do we encounter the one who can actually give us the true knowledge of God. And it's only through that then that we are transformed into the people that God wants us to be who live good lives. But it's not only through the true message of the gospel that we are changed, but it's as we look to examples of those who faithfully follow Jesus Christ that we discover what it means to follow faithfully. We look to those who are more mature in the faith and see how they live as an example to us. And that's why Paul then tells Titus that he needs to appoint elders in every town where there's churches in, Titus, in, in Crete. Um, so that people will be given examples 
of leaders who faithfully live out the gospel and teach the trustworthy message. And so he says in verse 5 that he's left Titus in Crete to appoint these elders. And then verses 6 through 9, he describes some of the characteristics of these elders or overseers, as he calls them in verse 7. And one of the words that is repeated a couple of times is the word blameless or above reproach. This is to be a characteristic of those who lead God's people. We read as well in in 1 Timothy that Paul expects deacons to be blameless or above reproach as well. And it's worth reflecting on what exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean that Paul expects these people to be perfect. If, after all, they were to be perfect, then no one would fit the bill and Titus wouldn't find anybody to, be a, to appoint. So we can rule that out. But to be blameless means that these people live such faithful lives that people cannot truthfully point the finger at them and say, you're bringing shame in the gospel. You've got this character flaw that is inconsistent with the gospel. Because the whole point of appointing leaders who are actually going to set an example to God's people of faithful living is that they themselves have to live a faithful life so that you can't actually point the finger and say, look, they're setting a bad example to people. So by definition, they have to set a good example to others. And Paul explains that this blamelessness is necessary in verse 7 because an overseer is someone who manages God's household. A household is this idea of, of your family, your extended family. It's God's family that the overseer has responsibility to take care of. That then means that this overseer, this elder, this leader, must live faithfully and care for God's own people. And so we get a list of the features of such leaders so that we would know the kinds of people that should be appointed as elders or overseers. And Paul says, first of all, in verse 6, that he must be the husband of one wife. And it could be that Paul was ruling out polygamy. Of course, Paul would rule out polygamy. But it wasn't common in the first century, so I I doubt very much that Paul is telling Titus, don't appoint a polygamist, because that wasn't really an issue. I think he's simply saying that this this leader, these elders, must be faithful to their wives, one woman men. Because we all know that the pain and shame that comes when we see church leaders who are unfaithful to their wives and actually end up bringing shame to the gospel, bringing shame to the message of Jesus Christ, simply because they are not faithful. And that's why Paul wants church leaders who will be faithful to their wives so that people can look to them as an example of what it means to live a loving and good life good to God's people and good to their families, to their spices, to their children. He then says that an elder must be a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, it's possible here that this word believe, you could also translate it as faithful, so he could be saying that that their children are faithful and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. At any rate, there's not a lot of difference. Paul expects the children of an elder to be those who who listen to what their father says to them and actually believe what their father says to them. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that if an elder's children don't believe, it could be that he's living a a duplicitous life. 
one thing before the church and another thing before his family so that they actually can't believe a word he says. Or, or it could be that he's just simply not communicating the gospel to them at all so that they don't believe. Uh, either way, he would want to ensure that an elder is someone who, who has children who actually believe the gospel. It could also be that this is a faithful man, but his children don't believe for one reason or another various problems in their lives. And Paul could be saying that actually this man has other priorities. There's no point in taking on additional responsibilities to care for the church if he's got a primary responsibility of caring for his family. Either way, he wants these church leaders, these elders, to be those who actually bring up their children well. It raises the question, though, what happens when a man is older and his children have left home? Is Paul saying that a man's children, if they're grown up and they don't believe, then he can no longer serve as an elder if they don't believe? I'm not sure that Paul is saying that, because after all, there have been many faithful parents whose children have gone astray. The Lord Jesus, he didn't have a family, but one of his own closest disciples, Judas, betrayed him and walked away, left the faith. God is the perfect father in the Old Testament, and his wayward children, the Israelites, keep on walking away from him. So I think Paul's concern here is that actually the people that are appointed as leaders in the church are those who are demonstrably good fathers, those who actually demonstrate they care for their children well. And I think that's Paul's overriding concern. And if he doesn't demonstrate that he cares for his family, then he can't be a good leader of the church. But there's other characteristics that I want to go on and think about very briefly. Paul says in verse 7, for example, that he mustn't be overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. And so the, the impression that you get here of this leader is someone who is gentle, someone who is patient, someone who gives people the room that they need to grow, someone who is sober, someone who is genuinely interested in the the well-being of others, someone that's not in it for what they can get out of it, but someone who's genuinely concerned about the, the well-being of God's people. And so that's the, the negative characteristics in verse 7, the things that he's not to be, but then in verse 8 he describes the things that he, he must be. He must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And the phrase that really stands out to me there is that he must be one who loves what is good. After all, this is the overriding concern of Titus, he wants a people who are devoted to doing what is good. And so an elder who is to set a good example must be somebody whose heart is set on what is good, who loves what is good, and thus lives a good life before God's people. And so, in ver and finally in verse 9, reminded that such a leader must be devoted to the trustworthy messages as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine, by healthy teaching, and refute those who oppose it. So not only must he live a good life, but he must teach what is good and be able to counter opposition to the good message of the gospel. And so then what we see is that as God forms this good people in the midst of a bad world, he gives them leaders who are actually going to exemplify for them what it means to live out a faithful Christian life. And what I find really instructive here is that the kind of leader that God presents to us, that God imagines leading his people, is not some kind of control freak or dictator or even some kind of radical visionary who, who's got this great vision for the future, this is what we're going to do. 
It's much more straightforward than that. It's somebody who lives a really faithful life, who serves the Lord Jesus. Someone who doesn't try to call all the shots, but someone who says, let me show you by example what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. And the reason why leaders are to lead by example is because that's how the Lord Jesus himself led He didn't call his disciples to do anything that he himself hadn't done, first of all. And so we see the perfect example of that in John chapter 15. In verse 12, he says there, This is my commandment, that you love one another. Now, if he just said that and left it there, that would be be good. He doesn't leave it there. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. And so here we see the Lord Jesus. He calls his disciples to this sacrificial love for one another. But he is the one who goes to the cross and lays down his life so that his disciples would know what it looks like. Because he sets the example. And so when the Lord Jesus entrusts elders to care for his church, he's not looking for people that... that are dictators, the people that want to control everyone. He wants people who are going to lead by example, just as he did, who will be the first to do everything that they call on their congregations to do. And this is a weighty responsibility for those who serve as elders. And most of you know, Deduzi and Jim and myself have been appointed to serve among you as elders. And that is a weighty responsibility. And I would encourage you to pray for us that we would actually live faithfully and set a good example for all of us. But not only to pray for us, but to look amongst us and to see the kind of people that actually God might be raising up to be elders in the congregation, people that that set for us an example of what it means to live faithfully as a Christian so that we could appoint those people as well to serve us and to lead us by example. And so then, God has appointed elders in his church to set an example. And one of the things that they're called on to do is not only to to lead by example, but also, as he says at the end of verse 9, to counter false teaching. And so then this leads him to think about the kinds of false teaching that needs to be countered in Crete. And so 10 to 16, he explains that there's false teaching, there's wickedness, there's deception in the midst of the culture that needs to be challenged if God is going to create this good people in the midst of a bad world. Now, some of the things that Paul covers here, we've covered in previous messages, so I'm not going to go through everything, because it seems that a lot of the similar issues crop up again and again in the churches that Paul is concerned with. And so, for example, Paul talks in verse 10 about the circumcision group. And if you want to see how more about how Paul deals with this group, you look to the letter to the Galatians. And Paul explains how what they're saying is really wrong and misguided. This circumcision group, they're probably Jewish professing Christians. And they are probably saying to those who are not Jews, look, you guys need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Jewish laws if you want to really be part of God's people, if you really want to please God. And Paul, he doesn't deal with the the reasons for why that's wrong. He deals with it elsewhere. He just basically says in verse 11 that such false teaching needs to be silenced. It needs to be put 
an end to. Of course, we saw in 2 Timothy that Paul wants leaders to deal gently with those who are in opposition. So again, he's not trying to get people to be malicious or nasty here. But that doesn't mean that we can let false teaching run rampant because false teaching is damaging and it's actually really important and loving to actually put a stop to it and and nip it in the bud. Because as Paul says, one of the problems is that this is disrupting whole households in Crete. Families are being ripped apart by this false teaching. And it seems that those who are spreading this false teaching are actually Cretans. They're from the island of Crete. And this leads Paul to reflect on how the culture that we find ourselves in can actually facilitate sin and falsehood and how the gospel has to challenge different cultures that it encounters. Now, we all know that there's different stereotypes we have of different cultures, and sometimes those stereotypes are wrong. Sometimes there's actually a bit of truth in them. So, for example, so as not to defend anyone else, and sorry, Sarah, you're also Northern Irish, but thinking about Northern Irish, I was thinking, well, what kind of stereotypes do we have of Northern Irish people? And I suppose one thing that people might say about Northern Irish people is that they're a bit stuck in the past. I mean, we keep on fighting about stuff that happened a few hundred years ago, and we can't put an end to it. Um, And maybe people might make an accusation that, you know, we're very divisive because of stuff in the past. Well, when Paul thinks about... Crete, he knows that there's a deep-seated cultural problem there about lies, about deceit. People just don't tell the truth. And so Paul, he quotes this Cretan, uh, this Cretan poet, one of their own prophets, Epimenides, who says that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Now, I think Paul's being a, a little bit humorous here, a little bit ironic, because then he says, this is the truth. Um, because if, they, if they're saying that you know, they never tell the truth and then Paul says that this is the truth and then he's saying that tongue-in-cheek. But Paul is bringing this serious complaint against the culture in Crete that actually there's this, this problem of lack of truthfulness. Now, when some people have read this, Paul saying that Cretans are always liars and so on, they've, they've said that Paul is engaging in a bit of casual racism here and therefore we shouldn't imitate Paul and what he's saying here. Uh, And I think, you know, we need to be aware of racism as Christians and shouldn't engage in racist tropes. But I don't think Paul is being racist here. I think he's reflecting quite seriously about some cultural shortcomings that needed to be challenged by the gospel in Crete. And so we might look at some countries in the world and, and recognize that there's serious problems of corruption, for example. And it wouldn't be wrong of us to say, you know, that problem of corruption needs to stop. The gospel needs to change people so that people are truthful and and honest. And so I think Paul, he's challenging a real problem here. But another reason why I think he's not being racist is because he's not saying this in order to wipe his hands off them, in order to say, oh yeah, Cretans are all liars, they're all lazy, so Titus, get out of there, leave them alone. No, he's saying that because he believes that the gospel changes people. He's saying that because he believes that the gospel challenges every culture in areas of shortcoming in order to show where it needs to change. And as people come to know Jesus Christ and their lives are changed by the gospel, then society does change. Cultures do change. And it's amazing when that does happen. And so then Paul tells Titus to rebuke false teachers sharply so that they'll be sound in the faith and not pay attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Now, 
He's not saying here that the Jewish scriptures are myths. Obviously, Paul was a faithful Jew who believed the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying that there's, there's these myths that are cropping up. People have made stories based on some of the stuff in the Old Testament. And it's just complete nonsense. And it's leading people away from faith and devotion to Jesus Christ. And they're, they're getting trapped in stuff which has no basis in the truth. And these false teachers are teaching people, as we saw elsewhere in Paul's letters to, to, to Timothy, that these false teachers are teaching people to reject God's good gifts in creation, things like food and marriage. And they're distorting um, God's good creation. And so Paul says that to those who are pure, everything is pure. To those whose minds have been made clean, they see God's good creation. They see that it's been made clean for us so that we can enjoy everything that God has given to us in creation. But he says that, that others, because of their corruption, because of their wickedness, their minds are warped and everything is corrupt for them simply because everything they see around them is twisted by their false ideas. And he says that they might have highfalutin ideas about living for God, but in their actions they deny that they truly know God. Exactly what they were doing that made clear they denied know, that they that they denied truly knowing God. I'm not sure, but at the very least, their false teaching and the fact that they were trying to earn a buck through spreading this false teaching is proof enough that they truly did not know God. And so Paul summarizes them very clearly by saying that they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So he's coming back to that good language again. Because he wants these Cretan Christians to be those who are devoted to doing what is good, who love what is good. And so he's challenging this culture of corruption, which renders people unfit to do anything good. Now, I wonder if Paul looked at our own culture, what he might diagnose as the problems that are amongst us. I wonder, would he challenge our preoccupation with leisure and say, you know, you're so preoccupied with having an easy life that you're not suffering for the sake of Christ. I wonder, would he challenge us for our interest in pursuing pleasure all the time and saying you're so absorbed with pleasing yourselves that you're not interested in pleasing God? Or would he challenge our love of money and possessions and say, look, you're so wrapped up with the stuff that you can get that you simply don't live lives in light of eternity? And I don't, I don't know exactly what Paul would say. He might say all of those things and more. But he wouldn't leave our culture unchallenged. He would nail it to our culture that we have forsaken God and that we need to live lives that are shaped by the gospel. And so the gospel never comes to a culture and stamps its seal of approval on it and says, oh, this is a lovely culture. And this is all in line with the gospel because the gospel always challenges us and says that we don't live lives in light of the truth. And we need to turn to Jesus Christ away from whatever it is that has led us astray and live lives that are devoted to Jesus Christ and to doing what is good. And so in this letter, Paul calls on Titus to nurture God's people and to facilitate God's work amongst them in becoming a people who are good and he reminds Titus that he's been trusted with this message, this true message, which alone can bring life. And he reminds him to appoint leaders in the church that will set an example for God's people and show them how to live faithfully. 
And he challenges this culture of corruption and says, you know, that needs to change. You need to live in light of the truth. You need to live lives that are shaped not by your culture, but by Jesus Christ. And all that Paul says here in the first century is as true to us today in the 21st century. So may God help us to be a people who are so shaped by our encounter with the truth of life in Jesus Christ, so shaped by our encounter with Jesus Christ, the one who loves us and gave himself for us, that we live lives who love what is good, who are devoted to what is good, so as to bring glory and honor to our Savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to so encounter your goodness and your truth and the life that you have given 